It was advertised that the devil was going to be selling all of his tools. Uh, he was just done with some of them for whatever reason. And on that date, the, the tools were all laid out on a table. And there were price tags put on all of those tools. Things like hate and envy and, and anger, lust, greed. But then there was one tool that was separated over on the side uh, from all the other tools. And it was worn more than the other tools. And the price tag on that tool laid out by itself was higher than all of the other tools that Satan had in his tool belt. That, the devil replied, was discouragement. And someone said, well, why have you priced this tool so high? And he said this, because discouragement is more useful to me than all the others. I can pry open and get inside a man's heart with that when I cannot get near him with any other tools. It's badly worn because I use it on almost everyone since so few people know it belongs to me. Have you ever faced a time of discouragement? Because it is still the devil's tool. I remember whenever I was working at a church, I was down in Dallas, Texas, and one of the other men, uh, he was actually directing the men's ministry at that time. His name was Bob Brunig. Uh, he was a defensive lineman for the Dallas Cowboys back in the 70s. And he and I had a conversation. I just wanted to know, well, what's that like playing pro football? What, what, do you, what are the experiences like? What are the highs and lows? He said, Chad, the hardest time of my week was Sunday morning. He said it was hard to get out of bed, knowing that he was about to go up against some of the, uh, the strongest men in the world. He said after a game, it felt like he'd been through three car wrecks. He said that was when I was emotionally the most discouraged. Maybe that's the time for you. First thing in the morning, facing the day, not knowing what's going to be coming. He and I had something in common that I understand the discouragement that a Sunday morning can bring, believe it or not. It can be one of the most challenging days, first thing in the morning when I wake up, before I can say a prayer, is the discouragement sometimes that I can feel, not knowing how the day is going to go, not knowing how a sermon is going to be received, hoping someone shows up, you know. Life is full of discouraging circumstances. And not many people realize the devil's using discouragement on us, and he's using it on some of you uh, right now. And the most blessed people, the most successful, the most spiritually mature face constant disappointment and discouragement. And what I want to do and what I want to share with you today and what I hope you'll do is just face honestly the discouragement that you're going through. You know, Christians have a twofold discouragement. We're discouraged, yes, we have discouraged feelings, but then we're discouraged that we're discouraged. I must be doing something wrong. I'm not practicing my face the right way. And what I want you to see today is you can be doing things the right way, but in our humanity, we will still face and have to deal with discouragement. We need help. We need it from others. We need it from trusting and obeying God in the middle of our problems. What I want to talk about today is what do I do with discouragement? What do I do with discouragement? And here at the end of Titus, 
Paul's talking about real people with real needs. People who are losing heart. You can define discouragement this way, to deprive of courage, hope, or confidence. It's when you're not sure you can face what's coming next. So then, starting with Titus chapter 3, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Titus 3.12. We'll be reading Titus uh, chapter 3, verse 12, uh, down through verse 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to be at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. You may be seated. We're ending today this little book of Titus, instructions given to this, this man, this man that Paul had selected to go and go to this little island of Crete because of all the false teaching that was going on there. And it's a book about not just talking the talk, but also walking the walk. Your behavior has to match what you profess to believe. Last week we saw how important it was that we show to an unbelieving world that we are followers of Jesus Christ. How we treat people matters. How we submit to rulers and authorities matters. All of that speaks to what we say that we believe. And now Paul is closing this letter and he's addressing some very real people with some very real needs. Even his own needs Paul is going to talk about. So on this subject of encouragement and discouragement, I'd like to talk about it this way. First of all, you'll see that discouragement comes to most. Now, I probably could have put all there, but some of you would be, you'd be like, no, no, I think there, was, there could have been somebody, so I put most. It's probably 99.999%. But for that person out there, you're welcome. You're welcome. And then secondly, the discouragement has multiple sources and causes. And then finally, how can we both encourage and be encouraged? So let's start out with that first one. Who gets discouraged? Here at the end of Titus, again, Paul's talking about real people with real needs. And uh, if you were to just open up your Bible, and many of you do this, you open up your Bible, and maybe you're doing a, a one-year reading plan. Usually that breaks things up a little bit. But as you just start moving your way through the Scriptures, starting at Genesis, moving through Revelation, you encounter some very, very discouraged, despairing, hurting people. Some of the ones we would call the heroes of the faith. Just consider for a moment Moses. Now, surely Moses is above discouragement. I mean, he was the one that saw God bring all those plagues to Egypt. He was the one chosen to be the, the one to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. He saw the manna coming from heaven. I mean, all of those wonderful things were happening. But he got to a place where he didn't think he could go on. You know, when the people came out of Egypt and they didn't know how they were going to be fed, and they started whining and complaining, well, at least back in Egypt we had something to eat. And he didn't think he could take it anymore. And he was so defeated and discouraged, he cried out in Numbers chapter 11, verse 15. 
He said, if you, he's speaking to God when he says this, by the way. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Do you hear what he's saying? God, if you love me as much as you say you love me, kill me. I hate this. I can't take the whining anymore. Get me out of here. That's Moses. He wanted to die. Then I see my friend Job. Job, if you know the story of Job, he had everything taken away. He had his, uh, his family taken away, his livestock taken away, his home taken away. Then he had three so-called friends that came by to encourage him. They made him miserable. So what did he say, Job 23, 16? He laid this at the feet of God. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Then there's a prophet named Elijah. Powerful ministry. Uh, he came around at a time to be a prophet when it seemed like all of Israel had turned away, were worshiping false idols. There was a wicked woman named Jezebel married to a wicked, weak king named Ahab. And they were all worshiping these prophets of Baal, and God had had it. Elijah knew it. He went out to face off with these prophets at Mount Carmel. And God showed up in a powerful way. Fire came down, consumed up sacrifice that, uh, that Elijah had put out and the sacrifices that the prophets of Baal had put out. This made Jezebel very unhappy. And she said, so let the gods do to me and more also. If I make not your life, Elijah, as the life of one of them, referring to those dead prophets of Baal. By tomorrow about this time. Now, Elijah, just think about what he just saw. You almost no one this side of heaven sees power exercised by God like what he saw. And surely he thought, you know, you'd think, well, he would just laugh in the face of Jezebel. Go ahead, lady. I'm not afraid, but no. No, he doesn't. Listen to what, how did he respond to this threat from Jezebel? 1 Kings 19.4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Again, wanted to die. And then it was Jonah, you know, the prophet Jonah. He was told, uh, go to those Ninevites. God said, Jonah, you're my prophet. Go to those Ninevites. They're confused. They don't know their right hand from their left. But Jonah hated those Ninevites. They were rotten. They treated Israel very poorly. And the only thing he wanted is for those Ninevites to be gone. Tried to run away. Got swallowed by a whale. Whale threw him up there conveniently at Nineveh. And he proceeds to go, preaches a message, and the whole nation repents. Now you would think as, as a person doing the work of God, witnessing the greatest revival of all time, he would be happy about that. But no, no, he wasn't. In Jonah 4, in verse 2, he said, he prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, is not this, this is hilarious, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country that's why I tried to, I made haste to get to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, 
abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And then what does he have to say about that in verse 3? Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. David, the boy that became king, selected, uh, defeated Goliath, great warrior of Israel. How did he state his feelings in Psalm 42, 3? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Now, these are all Old Testament guys, right? I mean, they're not receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit like you and I are. So we're in a different category from them. And in the New Testament, I mean, surely it's not that way among the heroes of the faith. Or is it? Peter, when he walked with Jesus, he saw his miracles. God said, Peter, you're going to deny me. He said, no, Lord. Sure enough, he denies Christ, as it says in the New Testament, Luke 22, what did Peter do? He went out and he wept bitterly. But what about the Apostle Paul? I mean, the Apostle Paul, here we have one of the, the writers of the New Testament receiving inspiration from the Holy Spirit, writing the bulk of the books in the New Testament, planting tons of churches. Surely he did not get discouraged. And yet, we get to 2 Corinthians 1.8, what does Paul have to say? We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. It seems that the best of whom God has chosen are not immune to the pain of discouragement. But surely pastors don't get discouraged, you know? I mean, you only have to work one day a week. You're, you're in the word of the Lord 24-7, 365. I mean, you don't get discouraged. Yeah, right. Charles Spurgeon, great pastor, London, um, 1800s. He would include in his curriculum to his students as he was teaching him to prepare themselves for the discouragement that they would face. He would say to them, one crushing stroke has sometimes laid the minister very low. The brother most relied upon becomes a traitor. Judas lifts up his heel against the man who trusted him. The preacher's heart for the moment fails him. Strife also and division and slander and foolish censures have laid holy men prostrate and made them go as with a sword in their bones. Hard words wound some delicate minds keenly. By experience, the soul is hardened to the rough blows which are inevitable in our warfare. But at first, these things utterly stagger us. And he went on to say, and send us to our homes wrapped in a horror of great darkness. I've experienced some of that, not to this degree. I've had many pastor friends who have thrown up the flag and said, I, I can't go on like this. And then Billy Graham himself, right, the, the guy of our age, what did he say? The Christian life is not a constant high. I have my moments of deep discouragement. I have to go to God in prayer with tears in my eyes and say, oh, God, forgive me or help me. If you've ever gotten to place in your life, and you may be there right now, where it's like, Lord, I'm done. I mean, maybe you're not suicidal, but it's like, Lord, I'm really, really, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go home. I'm done with this thing. Let me tell you, if you're there, I hope you can see that you're in very good company. 
that these men, these heroes of the faith, were laid low to the place that they did not want to go on five more minutes in life on this earth. Discouragement comes to us all in different levels. It can hit us at any time. But then where does it come from? What are these sources of discouragement? They come from a lot of places. I think that three of them are pretty easy to identify. First of all, it can come from your own personal failure. If you look at the life of Peter, I mean, he denied Christ and he wept bitterly. I know this in my own life. When I have screwed up, when I've said the wrong thing, when I've hurt someone, someone I care about, someone I love, oftentimes it's someone living in my own house. Maybe I was in a bad mood. And I've opened my mouth and I let it fall out. And, you know, you ask forgiveness, you receive forgiveness, but at the same time, there's still discouragement there. We're human. And maybe you're discouraged. Maybe uh, you've looked at porn for the hundredth or maybe the thousandth time after you said, I'm stopping this. I'm done with this. This hits men and women, by the way. It brings deep discouragement and hurt. It's a common reaction to feel discouraged after you've sinned. Then the second source is the sins of other people. The sins of other people. Take a look at what Titus was going to be dealing with on this island of Crete. Chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 in Titus. This is uh, Paul giving him instructions. He said, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families of the false teachers. Upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own. One of their own said this. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Hey, how would you like to work with these guys? Sound like a fun crowd, don't they? I'm sure Titus had to, for the 15th, 20th, the 30th time, he had to counsel a family upset by these false teachers. I'm sure he got discouraged. In the story of David, when he'd had this affair with Bathsheba, it was clear in 1 Samuel 12... When he was confronted by his friend Nathan, it was clear that their child would die because of the sins of David. But what about Bathsheba in that story? Her child would die because of the sins of David. You may be the victim of somebody else, their sins, their abuse, an abusive spouse. That can make you lose heart. That can make you not want to face another day. And then finally, uh, life circumstances. Life, life happens, right? And it can be hard and disappointment can be a traumatic experience. It's when a beloved family member dies before they should. It's when a job is lost. It's when financial hardship is coming. It's when a disaster hits. Finances decrease in hard times and and for many of us, when we lose our jobs, it is also, uh, it's, it's a switch in identity. All of a sudden, we're realizing how much of our identity we found, frankly, somewhere we shouldn't have. But most all of us do find our identity in what we do. When it's gone, well, who am I? What's my worth and value? It could be a long winter, for that matter. So then finally... How can we encourage and be encouraged? I'm going to take a closer look now at these verses at the end of Titus we read earlier. The first of all, this is, this is so important. So important. 
First of all, you've got to be able to share your discouragement. You have to be able to share your discouragement. What's the issue you're, you're suffering with? You know, when we look here at the end of Titus, Paul, godly man that he was, he did not hesitate to voice the needs. I don't, that they would be written in a letter for all eternity, that we would always know what the needs were of Apollos, Zenos the lawyer. He didn't hesitate. He, he did in previous letters, and he states he's sending two people to relieve Titus, Artemis and Tychicus. He knows the people of Crete still need help, and then in a moment he'll mention their names, the names of Apollos and Zenos the lawyer. He's mentioned Apollos in other places, mentions this guy Zenos. Why is he talking about these guys? I mean, isn't this, isn't ink and parchment important? They're doing the work of the gospel, and they have needs. And you know what? Paul has needs. And he asked Titus, he said, come and join me in Nicopolis. And the book of Timothy is going to say, Timothy, will you please come to me? In prison, cold, in a jail, I've got needs. Bring the cloak. I'm cold. He's not shy about verbalizing the needs of the community and his own needs. So what are your needs? What are they? Where do you need to be encouraged? If you don't speak up, I will tell you, nobody will know. Uh, you know, one of my greatest fears is that people, you know, they pop into First Baptist Church uh, on a Sunday morning. They sit shoulder to shoulder with people. As soon as things are over, they turn around, they jet out, and no one knows them. And they don't know anyone. And they are hurting, and they are in pain, and nobody knows what the hurt and the pain is. That is not how a church is called to operate. And if you keep those to yourself, you know what you're doing? You are robbing the church of its purpose. Because we're made to be a place where sinners, who are saints, usually, maybe, come together and we share our issues, our problems, our discouragement. That's how the church is supposed to operate. I'm devoting a lot of my time right now to uh, groups. And uh, in the office, we've just put a board on the wall. Uh, we've got a lot of people's names, and we want to know what groups people are in. But you know what? There's a long list of names of people that in my heart of hearts I know are disconnected. And it always concerns me when that's the case, that people are suffering in their silence. We've got, uh, I think that there are a lot of husbands and wives out there discouraged, again, about pornography. I think there's a lot of discouraged parents out there that don't know where to turn. I'm telling you, don't just languish alone. God does not intend you to languish alone. Now you are here, praise God. And I know for some of you that probably took a lot of courage just to walk in these doors, just to drive up in that parking lot. You know, there's another step to take. Ladies show up for a women's night. My wife, this past Sunday, uh, she was, the women are very good about getting in these little tables, you know, on, on a women's night. They have a speaker, but then they get in these tables and they have these small group discussions. My wife just went to one this past Sunday. She said, Chad, it was amazing. She said, they let me talk the whole time. <laughs> she needed to talk. I mean, I listen. I, 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 you know, I'm here, I listen, but it's not the same. I get it. 
I, she, knows, she knows I can't meet all her needs. She knows she can't meet all my needs. We need a place where we can open up and share. Guys, every Sunday evening, there's a group of men that meet right around that corner, right down the hallway, last room on the right, every Sunday evening, 6.30 p.m. Show up. Open up. We have support for everybody. It's here. You can find it. And then secondly, be an encourager. Be an encourager. Be an encourager to others. How do you do that? I think three ways appear in these last verses. First of all, you can encourage with finances. Uh, and here Paul mentions a few people by name. If we look at verses uh, 13 and 14, again, you've seen some of those, those same people. Uh, do your best, he says, speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See, they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. This was to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And Paul's making it clear there's physical needs these men are going to need, uh, that they have. And, and part of meeting that na- need is also the church, the people at the church in Crete, doing the good works he's called them to do to help meet these needs. Are you aware of someone that's got financial needs? Do you know how you could help somebody? You've got, you're going to have an opportunity here in just a few minutes. This is the Sunday that we take up our benevolence offering. And as you're exiting, you'll see some men standing at the doors of the plate. That's the money we use to meet the needs in the body of Christ. And helping others with resources that, uh, that we've been given as part of being uh, fruitful and knowing that we're using his resources uh, that he's given us for a little while, sometimes to encourage someone else. So we use our resources. God loves a cheerful giver. And then secondly, encourage with words. Encourage with words. If you look at verse 12, uh, the, the specific plans Paul's laying out for Titus. And Paul usually did this at the end of his letters that he would write. And he references Tychicus. Tychicus comes up quite a bit in Paul's letters. We see him in Ephesians chapter 6, 21 and 22. To the Ephesians, so that you also may know how I am and, and what I'm doing. Paul sees he, it's important for them to know how he is. He wants to be known. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. He comes up again in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, verses uh, 7 to 9. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He's a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant of the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Look at how Tychicus is described. Beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant, Then in the church, he would do this again in Crete. Let me tell you, the church needs Pauls. The church needs men like and women like Tychicus, encouragers. And you know what else? I think Tychicus needed to hear this about himself. That he's a faithful follower. That he's an encourager. He's a beloved brother. The conclusion uh, to Titus reminds us the people right around us, like Zenos and Apollos, need encouragement along the way. Who do you need 
who do you need to encourage with some words? You know, if you take 30, sometimes I've, I've timed myself. I will take 30 seconds, scratch something down on a post-it note, put it somewhere where my wife's going to see it. And she lights up. Can you make a 30-second investment to encourage somebody? And that will oftentimes last them hours, if not days, if not weeks, if not months. Encourage them with some words. Brighten their day. And then finally, encourage people with presence. Encourage people with presence. And Paul has instructions for Titus to meet him at Nicopolis. This is a, a good place for Paul to go to the winter. It was in a warm part of the, the world right there. Uh, it was uh, on, the, on the western edge of Greece, just south of modern-day Albania and Greece. And, and why did Paul want company? You know, what, I don't know what you think about it. When you hear and read about Paul, he seems like a very kind of a driven, um, goal-oriented guy, you know, uh, he's going to get it done. He's type A, task-driven. But when you read this passage, I'm not saying he wasn't like that, but he also wasn't a, uh, a loner with a, without capacity for human warmth. Because when I see this passage, I encounter a different person. He's got deep emotion. He has a healthy need for human relationship. He needs other Christians. He asks for people to keep him company. He wants a cloak to keep him warm uh, because of the winter. And he wants scrolls and parchments. Sometimes all people need, though, is for you to be present with them. You know, oftentimes this is tragic. Someone who goes through a really hard time, maybe a death, maybe they've lost a child, sometimes they're ignored by people. You know why? People are so terrified they're going to say the wrong thing that they try to stay away from. That's the worst thing you can do. You know, when I, I read a story by Rick, it wasn't a story, this is what happened to Rick Warren. He had a son that committed suicide. And when that happened, his entire community group from his church, they came to his house and they said, Rick, we're just going to be here. Uh, we're, you, you, we're not here to be entertained by you. We're not here for you to talk to us. We're just here. And Rick Warren, when he shares that story, he said, you know, when you're in a situation like that, when people are grieving, they don't know what they need. They don't know what they want. They just need people to show up and shut up. Just be there. This ministry of presence, some people don't understand how important this is. To be there. Just be with them. It's that healing ministry of presence putting this together. Uh, share your discouragement and encourage others with your finances, words, and presence. Share your disappointments. Please, we don't need any islands. And encourage others with your finances, your words, and your presence. Uh, have any of you ever seen the movie uh, The Blind Side? It's uh, Sandra Bullock. It's about the football player they adopt. They bring him into their house. And they wrote another book. Uh, the actual um, husband and wife that were portrayed uh, by Sandra Bullock, um, and it was called In a Heartbeat, and they're talking about foster care and adoption in this book, In a Heartbeat, and they tell a story uh, in that book of, of a young man. What people don't often realize is uh, when, when people age out of the foster care system and they're, they're not adopted, uh, a lot of, oftentimes they're just abandoned. As a matter of fact, back in West Virginia, at the Department of Family Services, the 
the pimps would line up outside uh, of that building because they knew the young ladies were aging out of foster care. They knew that that was the time to try to get them. They wanted to put them to work. There is an, a scholarship available, though, for kids who age out of the system having never been adopted. And they can do an internship. And uh, one senator was recorded in this book in a heartbeat. He employed uh, one such person uh, in this congressional program, awarding these internships. He employed one as an intern. And one morning, the senator came into his office, and he saw that uh, this young man, he was already there. He was already working. He was working in the mailroom. He'd, uh, he'd reorganized the whole thing. And the senator looked at this young man and said to him, this is amazing. He said, the mailroom has never looked so clean. You did a great job. Then a few minutes later, the senator saw this young man again and said he had tears streaming down his face. And he said, son, are you okay? Yes, he answered quietly. He said, well, did I say something to offend you? He said, no, sir. He said, well, what's wrong? And that young man looked at him and said, that's the first time in my life anyone's told me that I've done something good. The comment on that was a little bit of attention and a kind word. And that's how little it takes to affect someone's life for the better. You know, there's no greater picture of encouragement than what Christ has done for us. That he would come to earth, that he would look down on us, that he would love us. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, that he would die for us. And then we go, and what do we do? We love others with the encouragement, with the love that we receive. Who do you need to encourage? What discouragement do you need to share? Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much that you would love us that much, that you would sacrifice your own son for us. And Lord, I pray right now for that person sitting here, and perhaps they've not yet put their faith in you, Lord Jesus. Perhaps they don't know how much you have loved us because of the sacrifice you made for us. And I pray that they would come to faith today in you. God, I pray for that person who's a Christian who's discouraged right now in their seat, woke up with a heavy heart this morning, not knowing how to face today. God, I'm so thankful they're here. And God, I pray that someone would tap them on the shoulder today or they would tap someone on the shoulder and they would share. That they would take a step of courage and open up a little bit. That they would receive love from someone else, that their heart would be encouraged. God, I pray that we would all seek to encourage. Just a little bit of encouragement that would go a long way. I pray that encouragement would be received And God, I thank you so much for the community here at First Baptist Church. I pray it would be ever-growing, becoming more close-knit, more unified, that we would look to the needs of others and not just to our own. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.